Lord God, we thank you for the son that you sent for us. I thank you, Father God, that you have you have made a way into your presence through the blood of your son. And I thank you, Father, for your word that teaches us and, and guides us. I thank you, Father God, that we have the revelation that you've given to us so that we will know the truth. Be with us this morning. Holy Spirit, stir us up, instruct us and guide us, and help us in these days that we live in. In Christ's name, amen. We're continuing in 1 Peter. It was probably written in A.D. 63. And these were very difficult times. This was just before the intensity of Nero's persecution, just before it really kind of took its peak. It's an interesting time of history in the church, if you ever have a chance to read about it. The church was was under a great deal of persecution from the Jews, but they were also under a great deal of persecution from the Gentiles because Christianity opposed both of those systems. The, pers- the, the purpose of this letter is to give believers help, help in living a holy life while surrounded by hostility, all kinds of hostility. And with that, I want us to, to, to dig into this, and I've already warned some people I may... I may get carried away and I may not follow my script because this really means a lot to me and I think it really is important for us. Verse 18, chapter 2. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. The servants that Peter is referring to in verse 18 Literally, the word meant household servant. But it took on more than that as well because a household servant might do any kind of task. There are stories in, in history of household servants who were hired or, or kept as servants. I shouldn't say hired. Who were acquired as servants and they did medical care for the, the family. They were doctors. Only they were servants. So they might do that. They might work in the fields. They might do just regular housework. Anything that the master wanted was what a slave did. Many were not treated well. Some were treated like family. Some were just accepted almost like sons and daughters or brothers and sisters. They were, they were close to the family. Many were not treated well. When Peter wrote this letter... At that time of history, slavery was the social norm. We do not understand slavery. We, we think we do, but we really don't. In that culture, a person, any person, was either a slave, an owner of, a, of slaves, a master, or was related to a slave, everyone. Slavery was imprinted on that culture, totally. We know that the majority of Christians in, the, in that first century church were slaves. And we know this because there is so many passages, there's so many teachings in the New Testament directed towards slaves. Okay, there's a couple of other things we need to understand about slavery at that time. 
They had no possessions. They had no legal rights. They had no recourse if, if they were treated wrong, wrongfully. In, in our society, if, if you don't like your job, if, if you've got a really rotten, bad, terrible boss, you know, I had one right out of high school. I was working for an engineering firm. I was drafting. I, I like this story because it's a Wyoming connection. I'm right out of high school. I thought I wanted to go into architecture and drafting as a profession. So I get this job with this engineering firm. And they set me up, and I was doing two, two kinds of drafting. And one of them was plot plans, and that's part of the story. And the other was drawing an oil line across southern Wyoming. Huge sheets of paper. And I would draw the pipeline. Next sheet of paper. And I would draw the pipeline. Every once in a while, maybe once or twice a week, there would be a building I'd get to draw. I mean, there's nothing there. The other part of that job was I was supposed to be drawing plot plans. The surveyors for the company would go out and they would measure the, the properties and they would come back and they would say, draw this plot plan. And that plot plan was for title insurance. These were legal documents. I had to sign my name and they were all notarized. These were legal documents describing a piece of property. Sometimes the surveyors would come back and they wouldn't have two dimensions. I couldn't place the building on the property. So I'd put it in the resurvey bin. My boss was, he was so arrogant. He was just, he's, he's probably the worst boss I ever had. Because he would come down on me and go, why aren't you drawing those? Draw them. I, and I explained to him, he says, expletive, expletive, just draw them. I said, I'm not going to do that. I have to sign my name to it. And I finally quit. I, just, I said, I can't do this anymore. And I quit. I'm not suggesting that that's what we all do when we just have a bad boss. But to give you an idea how bad this guy was, I quit, and then six months later, he's in prison. They caught him. There were all kinds of things he was doing that weren't right. God saved me, man. He got me out of there. We've all experienced bad bosses. If you were a slave, what could you do? Because... What I could do is walk away. I walked away from a bad situation and went and got another job. If you're abused on a job, there's certain civil things you can do. You could turn your boss in. In certain jobs, that's really important. However, if you were a slave, if you left your job, if you just walked away, your master could come find you and kill you. And nobody would question him because you were a runaway slave. The issue of runaway slaves, by the way, is the reason that Paul wrote the letter of Philemon. He's writing to Philemon, wanting him to graciously receive his runaway slave back. Slavery was huge. Everything in society kind of centered around this whole concept. That was their society. And this caused incredibly difficult issues in the church. For example, you're a slave, and you come to Christ. Woo-hoo! Man, I'm on fire for Jesus. And you start, you, you, you start learning about who you are, and you find out, I have all this freedom in Christ. Well, I should be free everywhere else, too. So 
I'll leave my master. Aye. You then set yourself up to be killed. So the church had to deal with that. But here's another problem that's even more difficult that was occurring in the church. The, 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 the slave becomes a Christian, gets saved, and starts maturing in Christ and growing in Christ. And, and all of a sudden, the, the, the slave is recognized by the church, and, and that slave becomes an elder, the leader in the church. The same slave's master hears the gospel, comes to Christ, and comes to church, and has to submit to his slave, who is the elder. Wow, that's awkward. Wouldn't that be incredibly hard? It it was. And yet we also see in in writings and in in the scriptures that they got along in church. The people in the church were equal, and they understood that they were equal in the church. They were equal spiritually, but they were not equal in society. Spiritual gifts, spiritual Activity is not given because of social status or structure. It's given by the the whim of the Holy Spirit. Peter's exhortation is submission with respect. And the respect word there is phobos. And it's where we get phobias in our language. And what he means there, the fear he has in mind is reverential fear. I fear God because he is so great. I love him, I worship him. And there is a fear involved in that because God is also the designer of the social structure. We sometimes don't think that way, but God really is the designer of all of our social structures, good or bad. That's a can of worms. It's natural for us to say because there is spiritual equality, there must be equal rights. However, this is very difficult for us in America because we are intoxicated with the idea of equal rights. We see that in our news and stuff daily. Equal rights. Everybody's got to have equal rights, equal rights. But it may surprise you that Jesus and Peter and Paul and all the other New Testament writers, they did not ever write anything advocating equal rights. What did they advocate? We're all equal in Christ. Spiritual equality. If you were a slave, you were exhorted in the scriptures, and and in our passage today is one of those places, to stay a slave. The New Testament teaches all believers are one in Christ. This is where we are all equal. Paul wrote this in Galatians 3, 26 through 28. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. So that's where the equality is. All believers are spiritually equal. But in the social system of the culture, we are not equal, and believers are to submit to masters. The strong conviction that I see in Scripture about those early believers was their relationship with Christ. That was so important and so distinct. Their spirituality was so distinct that the ordinary social structure was insignificant. They lived in it, but their social structure was insignificant. 
Peter tells slaves to respect those who are good and gentile. Well, that's easy. What about the bad guys? Unreasonable there means perverse, unfair, unkind. The believer's God-fearing attitude is to extend to the good boss and the bad. Paul told the Ephesians this, Ephesians 6, beginning verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves, that's interesting, as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good things thing each one does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same thing to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. We're to submit to authority. Practical application of this then for us and, and throughout the history of humanity is that employees are to submit to employers as though they're working for Christ. And Peter goes on with the motivation of this, and this is, this is where this passage really gets exciting, and this really is the core of understanding where, where Peter's coming from. He says in verse 19, For this finds favor, for, it, for if... If for the sake of conscience towards God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there? When you sin, you are harshly treated. You endure with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. That phrase, finds favor with God, it literally can read, this is this grace So favor there is actually grace. Submitting to the boss, having a godly attitude on the job is a gift from God and pleases God for the sake of consciousness towards God. Refers to a person's awareness of God's presence and sovereignty. This whole idea is where where James goes in James chapter 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The exhortation of the New Testament, and specifically in 1 Peter, is to endure suffering. So our witness in the workplace is not compromised. This is the key of this passage. Peter is saying, Slaves, submit to your masters. Why? So that God will be pleased. Why will God be pleased? Because you are demonstrating who you are in Christ. Who are we in Christ? We're owned by Him. He bought us and purchased us. If if you don't do right on the job, expect to be punished. Right? None of us have ever been there. If you do what's right on the job and you're still punished, God says, I love you for it. That's difficult for us. This is radical Christianity. And I believe we are so intoxicated with our freedom and personal rights, we often lose our witness on the job and other places when we suffer. 
Because we don't suffer with the idea of glorifying God in our suffering. We don't have a good theology about suffering. We tend to continually protect our rights because we don't realize how God is able to use that kind of testimony and our suffering can be used to bring people to Christ. None of us think that way. When we suffer and are able to glorify God in our suffering, we demonstrate His strength, His goodness, and His power. We have to remember as believers that God could have in His sovereignty just gone, whoa, you came to Christ, you're coming home, and we disappear. And we go into His presence. But God did not do that in His sovereignty. Instead, in His sovereignty, He said, You came to Christ, I'm going to leave you on earth because I am going to use you to bring others into my kingdom and to serve others so that I will be even more glorified. That's who we are. That's exciting. Preoccupation with our rights blinds us to the exciting, glorious, amazing accomplishments we can have when we live a radical life as a Christian. Comfort on the job is not more important than your witness for Christ on the job. Peter continues, verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose. That's the purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, he who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. That's the gospel. Isn't it? Peter just stated the truth of Jesus' coming to earth. He stated the gospel. The Holy Spirit rescues believers from the kingdom of darkness and transfers them to the kingdom of light. And when this occurs, they immediately become enemies of the world around them. And and we begin to encounter trials and difficulties. But Scripture teaches us faithfulness, spiritual integrity, and a consistent witness are more important to God than a believer's perceived social status or rights. This is the key to this whole passage. Peter's using the example of slaves to masters. For us, we we like to translate that into, okay, I need to be a really good employee no matter how rotten my boss is. And that's true. Here's where it goes. This has a lot to do with work ethic. We're told to imitate Christ in this. How do, how do we imitate him? He, he died willingly. We're to duplicate that original. That's what that means. To, be, to, to use him as an example. Okay, so where do we go with that? 
Well, what this means to me is no matter what you do, you need to be doing it as though you were doing it for Jesus, with Jesus right there with you. So you, you, you own a business. I'm gonna, I, I see a businessman back here. <laughs> you own a business, but, but you own that business because it's actually something of God. You own it for Jesus. You work for that man. You don't work for him. You work for Jesus. You work at the school. You don't, your boss isn't the principal. Your boss is Jesus. You work at McDonald's flipping hamburgers. You don't flip hamburgers for whoever runs McDonald's. You do it for Jesus. You do it for Jesus. Your whole life is consumed with doing whatever you do for Jesus. You work for Jesus. You drive a truck. You drive it for Jesus. You work at the hospital. You work at the hospital for Jesus. He's the master. Submit to him. You go there and you do whatever you do and you do it as though you're doing it for Jesus. Why is that important? Because when you do it for Jesus, there's a whole different attitude. You run your business for Jesus. You work for Jesus. You submit to Jesus in whatever you do. And there's something about you that other people see. We need to remember that our Christianity is totally and completely radical from everything else that's going on in the world around us. Wherever you go, you glow in a different way. I'll use that as an analogy. You just, you just have an aura about you because you're alive. The community around us is dead. You have a certain odor about you. There's an aroma about you because the aroma that you have is the aroma of life. You live. The aroma around us is death because it's dead. It doesn't know Jesus. So you go to work and if you act like the world, you're covering up who you are. God's not pleased with that. But you go as, as a servant of God. You go working for Jesus. If that's your work ethic, people go, what in the Well, some of them go, what in the world is wrong with you? They don't get it. But right there, the door has been opened because then you can go, I'm just working for Jesus, man. You want to know about Jesus? I'm working at the, the implement dealership. I'm a tractor mechanic. And tractor mechanics are a little bit like sailors with their language, maybe a little worse. And we're, we're just frustrated trying to figure out how to make tractors work. And we get these two breaks, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And they hired this kid who was supposed to be this hotshot diesel mechanic who showed up without tools, which you kind of wonder. And we're taking our afternoon break. And as a part of his basic language was to use the name Jesus in vain. Jesus and the F word, just constantly flowing from him. And I'm sitting there and just going, this is... And I could, I could feel part of me just going, I'm just going to go over there and just use a Phillips screwdriver on him. I just, I hated it. And, and then God kind of convicted me and said, he's dead. He doesn't know any better. He's dead. You're alive. What are you going to do about it? So I'm sitting there, I'm listening to that, and he goes, Jesus this. And I said, hey, you know him too? He's one of my, no, he's my best friend. I didn't realize that you knew him. And the kid's looking at me like, you fell on your head or something? 
He thought I was absolutely crazy. And I, I just continued to say, you know, Jesus is, is the closest thing I have to a perfect friend. And you keep using his name, so you must know him too. Shut him up. At least for that afternoon. I did that two or three times. My supervisor was a believer. That was a cool place to work. One of the other mechanics, one of the good mechanics, was not. And Mike and I, the, my, my supervisor, the foreman in the shop, sometimes he and I would get together and we're talking about how to make this, this transmission work and we're just going, I don't know. And then we'd start talking about Jesus. And we'd notice that Paul would come over and he'd kind of lean in and he'd kind of listen. I got to share Jesus with Paul. He said, let's go have lunch. And so we went to have lunch. We didn't talk about mechanic and we didn't talk about all the other things that he usually talked about. He wanted to know about this Jesus guy. So I shared Jesus with him. I don't know whether he came to Christ or not. That's not my call. My call is to witness. My call is to share Jesus. This is what Peter's getting at. You submit to your masters. You submit to your bosses because you are the witness. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, you are a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you do. You could be an accountant. You could be a mechanic. You could be a, 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 a whatever. A lawyer? Mm-hmm. I have to think about that. Whatever you do, do you do it for the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he your boss? You say, well, I'm retired. I knew you'd be here, and I, didn't, I don't want to pick on you guys, I, you, but, but you're retired, right? Are you retired for Christ? You can still be required for Jesus. Required? Retired for Jesus. What do you do in your retirement? Well, I know you play golf. So I go play golf. I go play golf for the Lord Jesus Christ. How can you make that into a time where you just, you just beat the ball for Jesus? I go camping. I go fishing. No matter what it is, we do it for Jesus. Paul's point, Peter's point, James' point, the whole idea of in this passage and many others is that what we are is totally and completely what God is using to bring others into the kingdom. Your attitude matters. How does it matter? And how, how do we understand this deeply? The reality that Peter has presented for us is the reality of the gospel. What did Jesus do? He died on the cross for you. Instead of whining and complaining... The Roman soldiers were beating him and ripping the flesh off of his body. And he didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. That is our example. And why did he do that? He did that to purchase your life. Your life has been purchased, so that is who you are. How do you live that out then? That becomes a part of what Peter's after. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we were healed. And by the way, by his wounds we are healed. That Many have taken that to mean if you come to Christ, you just get healing. That's not what it means. Physical healing, God heals physically. I've prayed for people and they've recovered. 
I've been prayed for and recovered. God heals. That's not the verse to teach that. This verse teaches that you were healed. Healed from what? Death. The issue is sin in this passage in the context. When Jesus died, your wounds were healed. What wounds? The wounds of being dead and going to hell. God does physically heal, but the greatest physical healing that we will ever experience will be in the perfection of heaven. We suffer in this life. I often sometimes wonder as a pastor, I'd like to just take a survey of how many people, their goal in life is to not suffer. It's not scriptural. Now, it doesn't mean I want you to all go out tomorrow and find new ways of suffering. What it means is our attitude needs to be one of doing whatever we do, whether it's our work, our hobbies, our entertainment, no matter what it is, we are doing it unto him, unto Jesus, who bought and purchased us. He committed no sin. And he died for us. He was fully God. He could have vaporized those Romans at any moment, and he didn't. Instead, while he hung on the cross, he prayed for them that God would forgive them. I'm calling us today based on the calling that Peter gives to us, an exhortation that is huge. Be radical. Everywhere you go, you represent the kingdom of God. Everywhere you go, you are completely and totally different than the people of the world that you are around because you are alive because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are trying, difficult times. There's confusion. There's issues. And I'll tell you what. It, it just I was talking with somebody before the service. I don't care about COVID-19. I really don't. What I care about is whether or not we represent the kingdom of God. And if we represent the kingdom of God by wearing masks, then we wear masks. What would be wrong if we wear masks and keep the church open so people can hear the gospel? Isn't that more important than my rights? What are my rights? What rights do I have? I've been bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus. What Peter is trying to get us to understand is to go and do whatever we do so that he is glorified, not us. And I think we lose sight of how he wants to use each one of us. And some people go, well, Pastor, I'm, I don't have the spiritual gift of an evangelism. You know what? Neither do I. But I'll tell you what, the most exciting Things that have ever occurred to me in my life are the times when I've shared with people the Lord Jesus Christ, whether they come to Jesus or not. I've done it in Europe. I've done it behind the Iron Curtain. I've done it in South America and Central America. I've done it in India. I've done it in Denver. I've done it in Longmont. I've done it in Greeley. I've done it here. You share the gospel, and there's something inside of you that just goes, This is so cool. This is amazing. I believe that one of the problems we have in the United States is that we're bored. We don't have any idea what we're doing all, all the time. From one day to the next, it's the routine. Start telling people about what Jesus has done for you. What has he done for you? Peter just laid it out. 
He willingly died for you. How do those of us who don't have the gift of evangelism, how do we do that? Hi, how you doing? You doing all right today? Good. What do you do for work? You're, you're a cattleman. Cool, that's really great. Do you, do you run sheep? Good for you. So, so you start talking. And then at some point you go, do you go to church? Yeah, cool. cool. So, so are you a believer? Yeah. It, okay, so you've, you've, you've come up with a believer. That's usually what happens to me. I find somebody who's fallen away or they're a believer or whatever. I don't know. That's not my call. But I'll share the gospel with them. And then we talk about Jesus. There are other times when I talk to somebody and I'll go through exactly what I just did. And they go, well, I've heard about Jesus, but it doesn't mean anything to me, that church stuff. I don't have any need for that. So where would you go today if you died right now? If you died right now, where would you go? And a lot of times people just go, I don't know, never thought about it. That's, for me, that's the most common answer. I don't know. Don't think about it. I know where I'm going. And I just tell him, I was once a drunk, and now I'm not. I tell him that. Jesus died for me. I know that when I die, I'm going to go be with Jesus. I've got, an, I've got eternity all settled. I know what I'm doing. Can you do that? You could do it on the golf course. You could do it in the, in the restaurant. I never forget my friend Lloyd. He does have the gift of evangelism. And a big nose. And we're sitting at a table in a restaurant. It's a, it's a, um, we're in a booth and, and it's cramped. Everybody there but me and Lloyd were pastors. And Lloyd's, sit, Lloyd's sitting on the edge and the, the gal comes over and she takes our order and you could tell something's not quite right with her. You know, the village inn maybe wasn't working for her real good that day. She comes back with our salads. She sets the salads down, and Lloyd grabs her arm. Now, in our day and age, you know, somebody's going to call the police, and he's going to go to jail, right? Well, Lloyd grabs her hand, closes his eyes, and starts going, Lord God, I don't know what's happening in this woman's life today, but whatever it is, you are bigger and greater than that. She needs to know who you are. She, she came to Christ right there. Tears are, you know, he's getting on my salad. I, she's just falling all apart, but she came to Christ. That's exciting. I don't have those experiences, but the most exciting things are when I've been able to tell somebody the truth. You know the truth. You have the truth. You represent the truth everywhere you go. You are different than every other person that you're around unless they're also believers. And it's not your job to get somebody saved. It's your job to proclaim the gospel to do whatever it takes so that they know and understand the reality of Jesus Christ. And if we have to do that by wearing masks, I went to Longmont to see my, my daughter and, uh, from Chicago, and we all went to Texas Roadhouse, and you got to stand on this square, and, and, and then, then you can go to this square, you know, and they've got it all measured out, the six-foot thing, everybody's wearing a mask, and... And it's just nuts. It's awkward. We don't like it. 
Is Jesus bigger than that? Is it more important for us to have a good attitude and say, Jesus is Lord and Jesus saves you from eternity? That's the message of this passage. Submit to your, your masters. When you go to work, you go to work for Jesus Christ. If you go play, you, you play for Jesus Christ. If you do a hobby, you do that hobby for Jesus Christ. Your whole life is wrapped up in Jesus Christ because he died for you. Do you see that in this passage? That's what he's getting at. That's what he wants for us. That's the exhortation. Our shepherd Jesus cares for us, guards us. And as we live in these difficult, confusing times, the shepherd desires us to follow him. In this example, what Peter's saying is, follow him even if that means that they beat you to death. Because that's his example. I will not give up. I will not change my testimony because of work or society. He expects his followers to live the gospel, to proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So really what this is is an exhortation that goes like this. Go live like Jesus. Go be Jesus everywhere you go. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the sacrifice that we see, that we understand, that we know. Thank you that Jesus did die for us. And he rose from the dead. And he's given us access into your throne room. And for all of eternity... We are with you. Holy Spirit, change the way we think. Change the way we respond to the society and the culture around us so that we don't protect our rights, but that we see opportunities to glorify you. Give us the words. Give us the opportunity. Help us to, to see the excitement of sharing the gospel, the truth. Use us, Father God. Use us no matter where we're at. Open those doors, places, and situations. And Holy Spirit, prepare those that we're around to hear the gospel. That they would come into the kingdom and be rescued from an eternity of death. Father, let us not trivialize who we are. Strengthen us by your Spirit. Thank you, Jesus that no sin was found in you and no deceit was in your mouth. We give ourselves to you. Use us as you would. In Christ's name, amen.